Okay, welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, uh, Jeff Siegel. I'm founder and CEO of Medical Justice, and we do speak for more than a minute. Today, we're joined by my friend, Jeff Taxman. Jeff Taxman is the principal at Physicians Financial Services, which specializes in the unique financial needs of doctors and their families, as well as other productive individuals. Uh, Financial Physician Services is a national practice with administrative offices right in the heart of America, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Mr. Taxman is the principal of the firm and he has educational experiences and professional accomplishments that uniquely qualify him to help guide doctors through unique financial services and structures to maximize the efficiency of conversion of their earnings into spendable savings. And we will spend some time chatting about that uh, today. Uh, Their philosophy is based on findings from the Doctors' Economic Research Project, a specialized area of inquiry that evolved from privately funded research project initiated many decades ago in 1971 to study the economics of productive individual lives. And I do want to chat a little bit about that, too. For over 30 years, the firm has helped uh, successful physicians, dentists, and other productive individuals across the country to maximize the efficiency, control, and safety of the conversion of their earnings into spendable savings. Welcome, Jeffrey. Glad you can join us today. Thank you. You obviously discovered the website and have just put out everything there is to know about us. <laughs> uh, just a- almost everything. We, we, we'll probably hit the tip of the iceberg here. But, you know, I, we're going to be talking about doctors and money today doctors and money. And while most doctors do not go into medicine, dentistry, et cetera, to make money, they are well-compensated individuals. But I would argue that doctors are a unique subset uh, of the economic ecosystem for a number of reasons. First is that they don't get a start making money until later in life. So they kind of start behind everyone else, meaning that they're not, while they are getting paid um, as as residents, for example, you don't really make substantive money until you've graduated from all the programs. And for me, you know, just looking back and I went straight through, um, I didn't really start getting my first reasonable paycheck or or sizable paycheck uh, until I was 31. Um, That's number one. Number two is that um, many doctors start with substantive debt, you know, which their peers don't have. So they're starting with a network, a net worth of hundred thousand, uh, minus a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand. I didn't have that challenge because um, my tuition was much cheaper, which of course means I'm dating myself. But um, it's so the two reasons: number one, uh, the cost of entry is expensive. Many doctors accumulate debt to get started. Number two, they don't really get off the launch pad uh, until they're in their late 20s, early 30s. So what are your thoughts? Because I do think there are other things that make doctors unique in terms of the um, wealth ecosystem, but those are two that certainly are front and center. They also experience financial pressure uh, because their peers are who are not physicians have been out and making money for a while. So now that I'm making some money, uh, right away they're under pressure to have a, 
a better house, drive the cars, you know, they want to drive and, and have the lifestyle that they want to live. Uh, in our model, um, which it turns out is very different than uh, the financial planning model that is, you know, typical for the rest of the world. In our model, after they've uh, taken care of basic needs and debt service, have additional cash flow to start taking care of risks, uh, the risk of loss of their income, the risk of dying too soon. Um, the next thing we want them to do is set their lifestyle. We want them to be live a lifestyle so that they are willing to get up every morning and face uh, surly nurses and uncooperative patients and insurance companies that don't want to approve their procedures. Uh, so many doctors, um, especially in this environment where, you know, your only choices are working for hospitals and HMOs, may, you know, find themselves firmly planted in, uh, in their lifestyle. Uh, and they work, you know, as long as they can work and they enjoy themselves and the boats and the travel. And uh, for those then who uh, are in really productive um, specialties, uh, then we have uh, structures to uh, eliminate losses to unnecessary taxes and unnecessary risks and get them on the road to financial independence. Uh, a couple areas as a note, just based on our history, for some reason, doctors can't help themselves. One way or another, they wind up investing in restaurants. So, that, <laughs> so that's a, a, a surefire way to lose a lot of assets. Uh, and but you do get a good table and you get decent food. So it's not all lost, it's mostly lost. And, I'm, and I'm, now I'm guessing because I haven't really polled them, but people come into a restaurant and it's a happy place and they like you know, uh, you know, knowing everybody, uh, whereas going to the doctor's office is not, always you're not there for a happy experience so so there's that and the other way they uh knock off a lot of money is divorces so right um if you can get past those two uh you're on the road so just to summarize uh, and and i'm going to i'm going to add another couple of thoughts to that there probably are simpler blueprints for achieving wealth than to try and hit it out of the park with esoteric investments. So that's the first thing that we'll chat about. Um, number two is the whole notion, and, and I think it's unclear to physicians how and why this takes place, but I had a, um, a surgeon who was, that I work with, he was, he was a mentor, extremely talented, and he had been married and divorced three times, married and divorced three times. and each time it was just i love her everything's going uh swimmingly and i just assume that next round will be different so he was all in in his particular case i think it was the triumph of hope over experience um mm -hmm. but um each time it became an asset reduction technique meaning that if you just do simple math you can see that X divided by two divided by two divided by two is actually X divided by eight. And I, I do believe that he loved each and every one of them. I believe they, these individuals loved him, but without the proper structure in place to mitigate that loss, you know, cause he wasn't thinking about it. He ended up um, not keeping as much as he otherwise would have kept. And, and so this comes back to the, what I wanted to get into is the difference between rich and wealthy. 
Um, and I heard one person describe this, and I think it's actually kind of interesting. It said, rich is somebody who um, looks like they own structures in life and like a fancy car or a big house, and they can pay their bills. That's what it looks like. It, it, you give the appearance of being able to make the nut, okay? Meaning that your cash flow is such that at the end of the month, there's a mechanism, and it could be with debt also, but there's a mechanism just to make sure that with all the bells and whistles and toys that you've accumulated, you keep the debt collector off of your doorstep. Wealth is a little bit different. Wealth is hidden. Uh, and I don't mean that you're hiding assets. What I'm trying to suggest is that there are very wealthy people that you would have no idea the types of assets that they have, but what they purchased is freedom, meaning that they have the ability to do what they want, mostly, uh, when they want, mostly, and they don't really worry about it. I mean, they may worry about money kind of broadly, but they don't, they're, they're not losing sleep at night as to whether this was a fatal effort. So if they want to make a purchase, they may, and frequently they don't have the same type of urges and needs. That's probably how they got wealthy in the first place. But if they want to make a purchase, they just do it. Uh, if they uh, want to donate to a charity uh, because it makes them feel good, they just do it. They may ultimately look at these numbers later, but because they have accumulated wealth and not become beholden to um, conspicuous consumption, um, that what they have truly purchased is freedom. A any thoughts on that? I heard that as a definition from um, someone talking about money broadly, and it really stuck. I thought it. I thought it had. I thought it had teeth. You have put that very eloquently. Um, in our model, uh, it's money, stress, and time. So if you don't have money, you have lots of stress and no time. Right. And if you have money, you have less stress less time that's better for your patients and that's also better for uh for your own personal health uh in our model uh the first goal is achieving financial independence which is you know of, of which you are speaking there is enough money there to fund your lifestyle and that of your spouse for the rest of your lifetimes uh once you've achieved financial independence the next step is personal significance uh, personal significance you achieve by giving something to someone. Uh, so once we've achieved financial independence, then we're discussing with the doctor, okay, what are the value systems, the charitable institutions, the charitable projects about which you care deeply? And again, among our clients, making that flip from accumulating assets to discussing giving it away, is uh, it's a hard flip to make. But once they start, uh, they find it fulfilling beyond their expectations. Um, uh, example is we have a, have a doctor uh, who was in Norfolk, Nebraska. Uh, he made a sizable donation when the hospital was uh, fundraising to build a new wing. And it was, you know, doctors don't usually donate to the hospital, especially in this case was $250,000, which in the world of big givers, that's not a lot, but for the hospital, from a doctor, it was a big deal. They threw a, a big dinner. You know, they invited me up. We did a big check from the foundation we had set up for him to, to donate that. And uh, he now uh, sends substantial support every year 
to uh, a medical clinic in southern India uh, that otherwise, you know, doesn't have the resources to provide the services that it, they wanted to provide. Uh, so you've put it, you've put it exactly eloquently. That's, that's the, that's the path. So it sounds like in that path, the first step is to make sure that there's enough to fund a, a lifestyle that, you know, they have their eyes on. And I think, one of the first steps is try to figure out, well, what is an appropriate lifestyle for someone just getting started? I do believe there's a strong, I agree with you, there's a strong urge when you first get out to make up for lost time, to start getting uh, all the bells and whistles, all the toys that your contemporaries have accumulated. Um, and it requires a fair amount of willpower to resist going all in because the challenge, of course, is that the, the way this gets funded uh, is that you have to work really hard and it becomes hard if you're spending all of your money on consumables um, or things that depreciate, it's a little bit harder to build wealth. Do you have these, con I mean, I'm sure you've got clients, physician and, and dentist clients in all stages of, of the life cycle, um, but I would think that the, um, Probably one of the most important conversations would be people just getting started, which is resist the impulse to go all in and spend everything you make on day one and going into debt because you don't know what 10 years from now will look like. But if you can stick to a plan, a reasonable plan, you can get some of those toys. You can have some of those toys uh, today, but you'll probably be able to have all of those toys you know, down the road. If you, if, if indeed you still choose to do that, you, you may find that, um, that these um, these consumables uh, don't bring you the type of joy that you thought they would bring, and there are other ways to bring longer-lasting satisfaction. My national advisory board uh, has a number of different uh, doctors at different levels of their practice. Um, as far as the practice ourselves, you know, all we really do is uh, calculate what is your lifestyle, what is what you know. Uh, whether it's extravagant or uh, frugal, uh, we our planning is driven by what the doctor the doctor's lifestyle. Now, among my uh, advisory board, they are the ones who are speaking as you do, saying, "Young doctor, uh, you think that you want a boat and a pontoon boat, and you know to travel and the biggest house on the golf course, uh, but you know we think that that is um, irresponsible and silly." The client does not hear that from me. We're going to make whatever we can make work work. Uh, but we do have experienced, you know, uh, successful doctors who are there to counsel them as you are right now, <laughs> saying, uh, you know, don't get carried away. It won't be as fulfilling as you might think. Yeah, it, it is fascinating to see how people treat money and wealth over the years. I, I probably have a different attitude towards it. Uh, to money now than I did uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And part of that, I think, is a reflection of the people I surround myself with. So if you surround yourself with um, the Joneses that are always, um, you know, working to to accumulate more stuff, and how was it? One person described it as people purchase things with money they don't have to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. <laughs> I can't remember who said that. It was Will... I'm blanking on his name. Um, but in any event, I think money is a fact of life. You need to uh, have it to survive. And I do think it 
it does create options for you. And in the example that you gave, um, what a great gift that is to have accumulated wealth over time and feel good about being able to donate to a cause that makes a great deal of sense to you, uh, can be put to good use. You get this tremendous multiplier effect, you know, where you have one person now helping scores, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, and to no detriment of this individual's lifestyle. My guess is this this person's lifestyle didn't change one micron. Is that right? Uh, in this particular case, yes. And also in his case, I mean, now he's uh, 75 years old. Um, he could re he could have retired you know, uh, gosh, 15, 18 years ago. Um, but, you know, golf all day. I mean, he said, how much golf can I play? And uh, so he's still practicing. So that all that income now, uh, which he doesn't need, and we've set up enough for his economic safety nets for his dependents right. and grandchildren, uh, that, um, that uh, the more he's working, the more he can do, and he's just finding that to be fulfilling and supporting the value systems in which he cares about deeply. How frequently do you find that when people have become financially independent, they continue to work in the practice of medicine? And I, I bring that up because the field of medicine has changed dramatically over the past uh, several decades. And while I do hear from many physicians who say that um, they're tired um, with all of the paper cuts that they seem to experience, uh, it does constitute such a large part of their identity. I mean, I can still have the same conversation with a surgeon who will say that when they're in the operating room, they feel as if they're in their own universe and truly feel at, at one with everything. And I get it. I do think that they're being entirely sincere uh, when they articulate that. Uh, and so, the, you know, my motto has always been, if you like what you're doing, keep doing it um, because you may be replacing it with something that is something that's less enjoyable, less fun, less less fulfilling, uh, but you don't do it because you have to, you do it because you want to. So how I'm curious in terms of your client base, what are you seeing in terms of people making a conscious choice to continue in some capacity? They may slow down, they may move into a different field of medicine, they may um, there may be a number of different ways to skin the cat, but I'm just curious how many people just look that just give it up and never look back? Um, the ones that give it up, it, it tends to not be entirely their choice. You know, if they're doing procedures and they're getting older, the hospital starts to con be concerned about, uh, uh, concerned about them. And so the hospital may say no more, no more uh, rights or so something like that'll take place. Uh, in some cases, um, you know, obviously you get a dramatic uh, health change. Um, right. But many of them, uh, yeah, they keep going because, uh, like you said, it's uh, it's fulfilling. The the few that have stopped um, have had a very significant hobby or other um, uh, other endeavor. Uh, I really don't have anybody I can think of who just said great, I'm done, I'm moving to the golf course, and that's it. Uh, that's, uh, I actually, I have several that have done the golf course for a year or about, and uh, and then are back doing locum tenums or 
um, other, you know, looking for some kind of purpose. I don't find that shocking because, you know, you spent so many years getting really good at a particular craft that most people cannot do. And when you're when you give it up entirely, go cold turkey, uh, there's there's a void, a gap. It's so much of our identity that um, it's unless you replace it, as you describe, with some other significant hobby or other life mission. Um, I can see how someone would become depressed. Even, even I say that even with a lot of the headaches that exist uh, in the domain today, and and there are headaches aplenty, you know, to be sure. And they complain a lot. Um, you know, I hate the insurance company. Uh, you know, I hate all the reporting that you know we have to do that doesn't have anything to do with care. And uh, although they complain, you know, they they tend to stay with it. Right. I think their their complaints are spot on. I, I think they're many of the times they're entirely and completely justified. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, physician financial services. How did you get into working mostly with uh, doctors? Um, I know you you don't limit it to uh, to doctors, but certainly doctors uh, occupy a great deal of your clientele. And what makes you different from a traditional uh, financial advisor? Uh, actually, I started out in uh, New York City in 1978. Um, I had been <laughs> uh, at uh, Metropolitan Life Company, uh, started out actually in the bond department and then saw the people out in the field actually helping people. So I said, well, that's much more fun than uh, constantly just ordering a bunch of uh, low-risk bonds for the insurance company's portfolio. Uh, office was in the World Trade Center. There were some real legends of the planning industry there, so it was great to have wonderful mentors. Um, anyway, then was married in 1980, uh, so that's how we wound up with uh, my national headquarters now <laughs> in Omaha. Uh, but in 1992, I was at a uh, a conference in Hilton Head, uh, drinking, drinking Franklin Templeton Funds booze, <laughs> discussing with everybody there that I had these doctor clients, and there were there were plenty of things in the world for them which paid us really well. It was good for us, but it really wasn't any you know anything special for the doctors. Uh, and that's when I was introduced or recommended to go talk to. Uh, the group that was doing the doctor's economic research project, which had started back in 71. So having that protocol base, having a mentor, having um, uh, you know, a foundation, we uh, began strictly with doctors. And in uh, 2002, uh, we went with our, our own shingle and our own universe of authorities and all the areas that are important to doctors which and also that was where I was introduced to uh, medical justice, uh, which um, I believe strongly needs to be a part of every doctor's risk management portfolio, which we will talk about. Um, and uh, so over time now, uh, clients come to us, obviously referrals from other doctors. Uh, we do lots of doctor's financial education, including uh, the uh, you know residents in medical schools, uh, CPA firms, law firms uh, refer doctors to us uh, quite a bit because we have solutions that are really unique uh, for the doctors. Um, 
a story I do want to share quickly about doing uh, seminars in education. It was at uh, uh, University of Iowa in Iowa City. Residents are there, we had about 40 of them in the room. Uh, they were getting ready to go off to their residencies. And uh, this is this is a long time ago. So personal computers had just come out, which are called PCs. And back then, the ideal structure for doctors was to run their practice as a professional corporation taxed as a C-status uh, corporation. So I was waxing eloquently about the uh, tax efficiency of PCs when finally one of these brave students, like after half an hour, raises his hand and said, I understand what you're saying about tax efficiency, but I still don't understand how using my computer gets me those tax efficiencies. So I had to dial back and say, PC is professional corporation. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that worked. Uh, anyway, so we've been, uh, you know, growing. I've done financial education uh, all over the country. We presented at medical society meetings all over the country. Um, we've, you know, before COVID, you know, we really kind of stopped traveling. We've now put some webinar items up on the website, uh, but we are really just now uh, looking at how to uh, how to scale up. Um, although the number of doctors who earn more than they spend around the country may not be unlimited, uh, there's still enough that we can scale up and find people to help. And the types of physicians that you work with, I assume it's the full spectrum. It's not limited to just the surgical subspecialties, but just anyone who, I mean, I heard you describe it, who earns more than they spend, and that really could be anyone. Honestly, it comes down to lifestyle choices, among other things. Right. Good examples. A uh, doctor in a dentist in rural Iowa uh, got a hold of us, and I drove out there uh, to this little town, this little uh, dental office, which was uh, looks like nothing had been done to it since 1955. And his earnings out of the practice were 140000 a year, maybe. So how are we going to help him? Well, his lifestyle cost was like two thousand a month, so he had a hundred thousand a year of surplus earnings. Right. Uh, in this case, there was a, a a lot we could do for him. Anyway, it used to be until uh, we have some new tools that have been developed in the last four or five years that really the doctors we could help are ones who uh, ran you know own their own practice, so they had control of their uh, control of their uh, earnings right? Uh, and we're in specialties that do procedures so that those who choose to work like a slave <laughs> made a lot of money and who we could help um, and uh, or they have been good over their years of practice and have you know a million or two of assets and uh, just need to manage them so we don't you know lose them and uh, but now uh, We've got a couple of programs, which I'll talk about in a second, but we now do have things where we can help a doctor who works for a hospital, works for an HMO. Um, he doesn't have the ability to control his money before it hits his W-2, but we do have uh, efficient strategies. So um, really quickly, one of these strategies is the leveraged tax-free life income program. Uh, there's two types of leverage in it. One is tax leverage. It's built around a specially designed uh, 
uh, index universal life contract. So the in money inside grows untaxed. They can spend the money in their lifetime untaxed. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, if they go down early, um, there's uh, tax-free money that goes to their... Give an example of how that may work. Just keep the math simple on that, um, because it sounds like the, it's a life insurance policy that serves a role above and beyond a typical life insurance policy. Is that is that accurate? It, well, when you use the word typical... Uh, well, when so I say typical, I mean, uh, it, um, when people think of life insurance, it's a, um, a plan that will write a check if and when somebody dies to a named individual. That's kind of the traditional way we think of life insurance, but um, there's it's a contract. But there are also uh, ways that it accumulates a um, dollars, not only to pay for the death benefit, but maybe to do other things and help us understand how that may work. Um, because it sounds like one of the interesting benefits of life insurance in general is that it it, it's a tax-favored entity. It doesn't have all of the headaches associated with other types of investments, which which are taxable. So, yeah, if you could chat about that, that'd be very helpful. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.